Hello, you're listening to Get Mouthy, the podcast from the Head and Neck Cancer Foundation. I'm Michelle Vickers. Join me as I chat with some of the most interesting people I know who are all linked in one way or another in the fight against head and neck cancers, either personally or professionally. So hello, everybody. Today, I'm speaking to Dr. Marianne Trent, who is a clinical psychologist and is the owner of Good Thinking Psychology. And she specializes in enabling people's recovery from trauma. So thanks for coming on, Marianne. It's lovely to speak to you. And I I really think you're going to be able to give us a really interesting perspective on head and neck cancers and the sort of journey of that. But I understand that you've lost a member, a family member to cancer. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's right. Thank you for having me. So my dad died in 2017 um, of esophageal cancer, which um, led to secondaries in his lungs. Yeah. Oh, gosh, that's awful. And I suppose it's a silly question, really. But how did that impact you and your family? Um, I've got a brother um, and my mum and my dad were still together at the time of his death. Um, But it's very difficult. At the time, I had um, a four year old and 18 month old baby um, and he didn't sleep until he was three. And so he was waking a lot. It was a really big impact. So um, he was diagnosed with cancer, which initially we were told was going to be curable. They could have a treatment for it when I was early stage pregnancy with my uh, with my youngest Um, and being pregnant whilst getting this kind of news is kind of difficult as well it made me feel all kinds of complicated emotions you know I was very much aware of the pregnancy I'd had with my eldest child um, which had felt very carefree optimistic Mm. light you know joyous and just you know three years later to be in a very different headspace whilst already having a child and was very tricky but then you know early 2017 it was um we were told uh no sorry early 2016 it was we were told um that it was going to be palliative um and then my little boy was born in the june of that year gosh um, and he passed away the december the following year so i feel that we had a really really good 18 months of really vibrant health you know he was like the healthiest chemo patient you've ever met really he was whizzing down slides with my three-year-old you know it was was just incredible um until he wasn't you know until he had a stent fitted which I know lots of your patients might be familiar Mm. with listeners might be familiar with sorry um and then once you start to not be able to eat there's a real impact on the family on your well-being on your confidence and getting out and about and he sort of just gradually retreated from family life, really, in the six months before he passed. And then he died in a hospice. Oh, gosh. Oh, wow. So that's a huge impact. Just, I mean, I totally get that sort of having a baby around the same time because it's so many. So all consuming, isn't it? You know, um, I'm really sorry about that. But can I ask you? So obviously it had a massive impact on you and then your family, like after Mm-hmm. It sounds really morbid, doesn't it? But I'm just curious to know, like, after, how was that for your brother and your mum and you as a family? Um, my mum's quite stoic. Um, I think she was um, 
just very lonely. You know, we'd celebrated their Ruby wedding anniversary um, just shortly before his diagnosis. My dad was a, um, a real motorcycle enthusiast for vintage motorbikes. Um, and he wanted to go off to the TT, um, the vintage TT, um, which delayed him going to the doctor. He was like, I'm going to go when I get back. And it's almost like he thought, if I yeah. go, I won't be able to go and I really want to go. So he went off to his friends. Um, but I live about 40 minutes away from my mum and and where my dad was living as well. And having young children, it's tricky, um, yeah. you know, but I did have a period of time. I was working for the NHS at the time and I had a couple of months off to be able to spend some more time with mum on the days where I didn't have to look after my children. And, you know, going through possessions and doing all of that and, you know, trying to be there as much as I could for her whilst, you know, going out for lunch and trying to grieve and mourn and reel a bit together, really. But it's, yeah. it's not easy when you're juggling a family. So anyone who's listening to this, I absolutely get what that's like to feel pulled in different directions. Yeah, yeah. So getting back to your good thinking psychology, what when did you decide to start that? Was it at the same time? Was it before? So I started my private practice um, when my um, youngest started preschool. So when he was three. Um, so that was after that was after dad died. So that was 2019. I think it was September. So just just before the pandemic. I think. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Wow. And what exactly did you do? So for how did you generate? How did you start it? um uh well my husband was like what are you going to do um when he goes to nursery and you've got two mornings a week off I was thinking I might have a massage or a nap <laughs> <laughs> and he was like no I think you should start a business and I was like oh I suppose I could do that but I'd probably prefer my idea um but I was I was working in adult mental health at the time so I started seeing patients privately in a very limited capacity um, yeah. a couple of days a week but um then someone challenged me to try and write a book in a month and I was mm -hmm. like you know this is this is the time to do the book that I've been thinking about um about grief and about supporting people with yeah. grief. so that's kind of been a bit of a project that's run um yeah. as well I, that looks so interesting to me. Um, I was reading a bit about it. So um, Marianne's got a book called um, The Grief Collective, and it's a series, a, a number of, I think it's 54 stories, isn't it, of people who have, it's the stories of life loss and learning to heal. And I, I'm really interested in the fact that it's written by people who they've, they're telling their stories. Because um, one of the things we've, we've got a, an amazing Facebook support group and one of the first things whenever people phone me up and are saying I've just been diagnosed or my mum's just been diagnosed or a family or friend, I would say get onto that support group because it is just patients and friends of family. And more than any surgeon or anybody can help you, it will be the people who have been through the same thing and will have their stories to tell you. And also they even know like, they know like hacks and tips about, you know, about ways around things and how they dealt with it. And I think always just at human curiosity, don't we? We want to know, well, what did it happen when it happened to you? What, what was it like? You know, and then hopefully you might sort of feel some measure of that. So was that easy to get that, though, the, the 54 stories? 
it wasn't that easy in a month no <laughs> um and editing it all but it was honestly yeah. the most wonderful project to be part of and people found it really cathartic and that's yeah. my advice to anybody who's got a diagnosis themselves or who is trying to assimilate themselves to someone else's diagnosis or the loss of someone they love that putting pen to paper can be really a therapeutic process mm -hmm. and in terms of the way that trauma healing and processing works it actually is one of the ways for helping process trauma is because when we've been really triggered by something um, the top part of our brain which is the bit that kind of time and date stamps our experiences is kind of offline because the bit that matters is the fight and the flight it's you know the get the body out of there and safe or make the body stay still in a situation that it can't um, get away from so at that point it doesn't matter if you you know you're remembering you know the texture of a duvet or the the color of the sky that bit might get you killed if you're trying to run away from a lion you know yeah. uh, what matters is being able to power those legs to get away so what we, what happens when people have been through something traumatic is that they feel like it's happening all the time you know it feels like it's relentless it's going around and around and around and it's because the bit that time and date stamps it then goes that was 2017 that's yeah. happened hasn't been done so when we process things either in therapy or just as a way of writing and telling our story it helps the body and the mind to connect more and to do that time and date stamping in a way that allows the whole person to go oh oh yeah okay gosh that that feels like that was that many years ago. Whereas actually when I walked in today, yeah. it felt like it was still happening now. Whereas now, yeah, yeah I can totally appreciate that that's not, that's not now. Yeah. And you get this kind of visceral, visceral shift where people yeah. are feeling that. And so you're just a small act of putting pen to paper, even if it feels difficult, what it does with trauma, you might get... B, D, T, R, B, A. Things aren't in a yeah, coherent in order. order. So mm. what? Um, so it can be really helpful to do a before section, a during section, and an after section. So a before section would be before you even heard the word cancer linked to yourself or your loved one. You know what was happening. Yeah. And then that goes right up until you first started to think, oh, you know, what's that in my mouth? Or, yeah. you know, what is that strange lump thing? Yeah. And so you, that's your before section. But the during section happens as soon as that first noticing happens yeah. and takes you up until, I don't know, if someone has successfully had treatment, it would be until they've been given the all clear and they're home again in their own bed you know yeah. so that would be the during and the after would be everything that came after mm -hmm. but of course with um if someone has has lost a loved one the during the, uh, the during would finish at the point that the person yeah. had passed away and then you got home to your own bed so some of our patients listening to what you're saying some of our patients when i talk to them the trauma can quite often be after they've had their treatment so for some of our patients for instance it may be at worst case scenario they have a disfigurement that impacts on their speech um 
you know, one of our, one friend of, our, of the charity, she had, um, she's basically had her jaw replaced um, and speaks in a, in a whisper now. She used to play the flute, you know, she used to sing. She can't do any of those things. Anymore. I mean, she's an amazing woman. And we have other patients who um, feel uh, they can't eat with their family because it's impacted on the way they eat. And so even though they're alive, I think they, there's a feeling of this is trauma I didn't know I was going to have. You know, this is not, I didn't know that this next bit was going to be as traumatic as this because normal is not ever for a patient. I think anyone really with cancer, normal is never back to normal. It's just a new normal. So it's how to deal with that sort of trauma. Living, you know, it's it's not got a beginning and middle and end at, at that time. You know, it's it's like you said, it's like ongoing. Okay, well, you know, with the example of the music player, that is a real loss of identity. You know, I've got a lot of friends who are musicians and that's just, you know, they're part of a unique tribe, you know, Mm. and um, whether it feels like they can't even be part of that to listen to or to go to sessions or, you know, that's really difficult. Um, And it will be important to mourn for that loss um, as if you've lost a part of, um, you know, someone important to you because clearly that's part of what's kept someone well and happy Mm. and balanced. And what we saw during the pandemic is that lots of our self-soothing behaviours were outside of the house, things like cinema um, or playing in a band with friends or, um, you know, catching up for dinner with your mum, for example, but things that were outside of the home. And so a lot of the things that we do to soothe ourselves are I mean, you know, not just things we do by ourselves and part of our identity that we might have grown up for years. You know, you don't start to learn the flute overnight. That's likely no, been exactly. since, yeah. since you were young and to suddenly through no fault of your own, you know, they've not chosen to put that flute down. Mm. Um, it's a real shift and you can be really, really cross about that actually yeah. you know and it's important when we go through grief stages that we lean into all of those difficult bits as well so you know disbelief and um you know adjusting to that and really hopping mad anger is kind yeah. of important as well but um you know it's it's not something that you've chosen it's not something you've designed um and I think there's always hope, isn't there? So when someone says, you know, uh, we're going to have to do this, but there might be some reconstruction and, you know, someone might look at themselves and in their head think it's okay because the treatment's not finished yet. You know, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. But then you're told this is as good as it's going to get. And and also with the, you know, the time and date stamping, when we are trying to do our best to get through, we're kind of running on adrenaline and cortisol and stress hormones. We're not really properly probably living within that moment. We're always thinking, just get through it, just get through it, get through it, get through it, get through it and done. And then when you are through it and done, then you have to really go through it all again and reprocess it and assimilate where you're at and what you've lost and you know the brush with your own mortality or your loved one's mortality that they might have had and it's it's very difficult very painful and Mm. people will very helpfully say well at least you didn't die or at least they didn't die but sometimes people think well I'm not sure if maybe that would have been better. This this is difficult, you know. Yeah. 
I don't know if I would have consented to the surgery had I known this is what I had to deal yeah. with and I might have just preferred to take my chances but that's a tough conversation to have with your yeah. family who want you in whatever shape or form you're in because they love you yeah. but it's it's tough conversations to have and this is where reaching out to a therapist a counselor a psychologist yes. can be useful because you can have those conversations without feeling like you're triggering people but sometimes they're important words to hear yourself say yeah because I also think as well as you have so Suzanne who we spoke to a few weeks ago who is a fantastic volunteer for us but she um is a survivor of her uh, her cancer but um she's got you know she's got children so she, and you know her her youngest was quite young at the time and so she was like I'm determined you know I'm absolutely going to survive this I'm going to live through this and she was very positive about it you know she was kind of like I am going to do this and then just the other when we were chatting she said oh you know oh you know eating's a bit difficult but you know and and I kind of thought isn't that amazing because her her view of it all is exactly that I'm alive I'm alive I'm gonna she volunteers for us and is doing amazing things for us um up, up in Durham but um her view is I'm gonna do everything I can because I have survived you know and she's obviously been able to um come to terms with that with that sort of difficulty and I think there's like a high of that, isn't there? There's the high of coming out of treatment and someone saying you're cancer free. And then quite easily there could be a, whoa, and now I've got to, I've got to learn to speak again. I've got to learn to eat again. Um, and it's the kind of dealing with that. You mentioned about having counselling. For a patient who's in this treatment, what happens in the, I know you're in private practice, but in NHS, I know you worked previously in the NHS. Does that automatically come for people? Does everybody get that? Um, so I was in the adult mental health team. So it would be if something was um, happening in addition to um, the physical health, then, um, you know, you could be referred to the adult mental health team, but this would likely be under the physical health team. So usually via your, um, your hospital. Um, there are palliative um, psychology teams, um, but of course not all cancer patients are palliative. Um, but the, if you're wondering what options there might be for you, um, for your specific type of cancer in the area that you live, then your um, Macmillan nurse, if you have one, um, and your hospital specialist is the best person to advise. And if you don't feel like you're getting the answers there, then um, speak to your GP and think about mm. what the local referring options are for, for psychology um, in, in your locality. Do you think it's a good idea for, um, is it a good idea, like if you were just diagnosed and you're in a state of this would it be a good idea to think about some sort of counselling at the beginning of your journey I think it certainly can be um, and different things crop up at different stages and part of the beauty of um, of a therapeutic um, relationship is that you can say those things and yeah. that people will you know therapists will know the types of things that you might be thinking yeah. and will almost say it like that you know lots of people I've worked with have sometimes said things like this to me is that something you're thinking and they're like oh well thank goodness for that because yes. I just thought yes. I just thought it was me you know yeah. yeah and sometimes that's just what you need isn't it you just need you need someone to take you to a place to think about 
to think about that and and I think quite often um patients are uh being so strong for their family for their families um and friends that they that it's almost like a show the whole time you know that they're just being upbeat about it and um, maybe not actually processing it themselves about what's actually happening to them um, and how they might deal with it um this is a bit grim, I suppose, but have you ever had to work with people who have actually been told that they've got X, you know, that well, obviously your dad it happened to your dad, but um, I suppose from a patient point of view, have you ever had anyone who's who knows they've got like X months to live and help I've, you deal with that? Yeah, I've, I'm trying to think. Um, so I've never worked with people who've who've had a, a time estimate. I've worked with people who've had long um, acting tumours like prostate cancer. But, yeah. you know, they've been told you will die with this, but um, it might not be what kills you. Um, but I haven't. But um, one of my friends does work in palliative um, psychology and does so regularly. Um, and it's, you know, it's a real privilege actually yeah. to spend time with people um, really going through some of the things that they're thinking, that they're feeling, that they're experiencing, trying to get some of the edges to lay flat a little bit yeah. so that they feel as less to be remorseful for really and yeah. to regret. And um, I, went, I was speaking to my dad um, in his final few days. And one of the things that wasn't laying flat for him was, Oh, I wish I'd, wish I'd tried harder in school I wish I'd listened more to the teachers because he was just a little bit of a jack the lad really I think my dad. <laughs> um, he ended up working as a, a boiler engineer and was a trained electrician so he found something very active that kept yeah. him busy and engaged um but you know it's it's what thoughts people might be having mm. in their final moments and I often think well how lucky my dad is that that's all that was troubling him yeah that and Putin unfortunately was troubling him and that still bothers <laughs> me it still bothers me yeah, yeah that this yeah. lovely man was worrying about him you know yeah. in his final days and yeah. he was worried about the state of what that would happen in future yeah. it looks like he was right yeah. um but um you know just that if if you don't have someone who's going to be able to sit and talk with you about you know the more existential yeah. stuff then it might be helpful to consider accessing some kind of therapeutic support um a little earlier in your journey because it's complicated stuff there's no manual for how to die um no. and there's no manual to support people how to die and so if you are supporting someone who uh, if you feel that need to be strong either as the patient or as the um as the loved one yeah. you don't need to be it's okay to have feelings and sometimes accessing um, outside support can just give you that space to yeah. Do what you need um, to show up and almost have those conversations early. Yeah. So I found it quite helpful to have quite frank conversations with my dad's yeah. um, Macmillan nurse, for example, because I kind of wanted to know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but I didn't necessarily want my dad to know um, yeah. what I knew. Um, yeah. And so, you know, we all work in different ways. Some of us like not knowing and avoiding and distracting um, but I am very much more of the accept and control and try and make the best of the situation you're in with the resources that you've got. Mm. So we're going back we, we um, talked about the the book that you've written on on grief what's 
would be your advice to listeners? You've already given some advice about you know, actually writing things down and, and t- giving it a time slot. But what would your advice be to listeners who perhaps have lost a loved one to cancer? Um, I would say really think about the ways in which you want to be supported because people will likely try and respect your wishes by not mentioning your loved one to you and by not bothering you really and will probably think she wants help she'll ask for it but what we know is that that's not actually the case you know Um, and so I would say just really really be honest with people and yourself about the kinds of things you want you know so actually when I look back um, with hindsight what I would have really liked is um, someone to come and look after my children so I could have a nap you know small things like that you know grief uh, sleep uh, is needed for grief to heal I think and just thinking about whether you would welcome any more support or whether you'd you know even getting used to um, eating alone if you've lost someone that you've been with for a long time you know could you offer to do some zoom dinners um, or actually go out and eat together Um, could you try and help either yourself find new ways to do new things or new ways to do old things just to help um, I was speaking to someone the other day that was saying it's a little bit like moving into your kitchen to go and get a glass of water in the dark and you know um, that there's going to be a chair or a table leg and you've got to avoid that at some, at some point uh, and so you're so used to doing that but then one day it's not there and you go into the space where it should be and it's not there and it's, it takes your whole body a moment to try and catch up with that. And I think that's a lot what losing someone is like, that it will come back to you at different points in your life. And it will be like this table leg that you always have bumped into isn't there anymore. Yeah, it's such a, it's such a, a difficult thing because I think you're absolutely right in that your first thought is, Oh, I'll just leave them to it. And then when they're ready, they'll come to me and they'll, you know, they'll they'll ask for help or or whatever. And you sort of I think there's a real worry about being over, you know, to either being not sensitive enough or, or reminding them of it all the time. And as you said, there are some people who actually just want to talk about their loved ones and, you know, and and, and want to do that. It's funny you saying about the baby because I, I had my two really close together. And when I had my first baby everyone comes around and offers you loads and loads of help don't they because it's your first baby and my two are 18 months apart when I had my second no one bothered with me because it's kind of like well she's had a baby so she knows what she's doing but that's when I really did need the help because I was like I'd like to sleep get changed out of my pajamas would be really really helpful but strange enough when I reflect back on that I never asked I never said to anybody look what I really could do with is someone someone to come around and clean my house run a hoover around for me or just let me get dressed in the morning you know um and I think it is that thing of maybe thinking what is it do I that I actually need from people what do I need help with and then articulating that um to your friends and saying you know I do still want to talk about them I do still want to have them around you know without it um without it it making it sort of really difficult uh for people Definitely. And it's about just allowing yourself to be compassionate to yourself. You know, it's so, so important, Um, really is. And I think that's something I've moved through. I only really discovered the act of of self-compassion after my dad died. But I think had I discovered it earlier along in my journey, it would have been transformational for me, actually. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I could talk to you forever, Marianne. It's been really fascinating talking to you. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. I know people are going to want to know more. So uh, I know people are going to have connected it with a lot of what you've said. So where can they find out more? Where where can they, they come to and, and learn a bit more about this? OK, so I am on um, LinkedIn, Dr. Marianne Trent. I'm on Instagram, also Dr. Marianne Trent. And Facebook is Good Thinking Psychological Services. I'm also on Twitter. That's Dr. Marianne I'm Trent. I'm basically everywhere. <laughs> Amazon is a place to go if you want to check out the Grief Collective. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so, so much for speaking to us. And I, I hope we do we speak again and, and, and maybe develop some other topics, you know, that we might be able to sort of help with people. If anyone's got any ideas, anyone's listening and thinking they'd like to hear Marianne talk about you know um something close to this then then please do get in touch and, and we'll have Marianne back on absolutely so thank, thank you very much Marianne it's been absolutely lovely talking to you thank you so much for information support and advice including how to check your own mouth look up hncf.org.uk or follow us on socials search hncf <laughs>